The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good evening. Um, just want to say that it is significant that you're here tonight. It's significant. This isn't an easy practice that we do. You could be anywhere tonight. And um, it's really auspicious that you're here. And um, I don't know, perhaps you're here tonight because you're, you need some quiet moments. Or perhaps you're, it being the new year, you're looking to reset some priorities in your life, what's important to you and what gives meaning. Or perhaps you're here because you're struggling, struggling with some challenge in your life. So whatever the reason, uh, the Buddha gave us this gift of this practice and so that we can be truly awake to these things um, in life and be fully present for them, no matter how challenging or painful. And he gave us tools. I mean, this practice is a tool that we can use to investigate our human experience, the human condition. And so ultimately, we can each one of us free ourselves um, from the suffering that comes from living in a world where everything's always changing. And where nothing, nothing really is truly solid or permanent. So um, I hope that you'll give yourself some appreciation for being here and for, um, for taking on this practice. Um, it is significant. It takes effort. And, you know, the Buddha often began his talks with, Oh, nobly born. And this really is a noble practice that we do. We connect with that um, nobility that is within each one of us as human beings. So, um, so I haven't introduced myself. <laughs> I wasn't sure if Alfonso was going to introduce me or not. But anyway, um, I know some of you. I'm Susan Ezekiel. And um, I, um, I haven't been here in a while. Um, I was involved in actually the founding of the center back in 2002. And I taught here from time to time over the years. And then I got involved in um, chaplaincy, Buddhist chaplaincy. And so I actually moved away for a couple of years to work in a hospital in Southern California and then came back here and um, was at San Francisco General. And now I'm at um, Stanford Hospital, just part-time now. And I'm um, right now living, I, I'm living at the um, retreat center, our retreat center there in Scotts Valley. Maybe some of you have been there. Um, I, um, I've been practicing there with really a big big shift that happened in my life, big transition, um, and, you know, a lot of loss in my life, so, in 2015. So, um, so, as I've been at the retreat center with the intention of 
really being there for the last three months in retreat mode, really just doing a lot of practicing and sitting in on most of uh, the retreats and just um, entering fully into my suffering is what I was doing. Um, And with the intention of um, really deeply investigating investigating it. And, you know, uh, if we're not able to be fully present, fully present with our suffering, as painful as it can be, if we don't um, investigate it with these tools that the Buddha gave us, um, then how can, if we don't understand it fully, then I don't think we can ever really be free of it. So this is what it takes sometimes to, um, you know, to really understand it and to um, experience at a very deep level. What, what, is, what is suffering? What is this about? What's going on here? So, um, as I mentioned during the guided meditation, um, this practice that we do is very much an embodied practice. And it's a practice that can um, relax the body, that can bring tranquility, tranquility into the body. So when the body is relaxed, um, then the mind tends to relax. So I kind of think of it as, um, you know, body and mind are woven together like fine cloth. And so when we can relax the body, the mind tends to follow. So maybe you've noticed that in your practice, and that's why we're always coming back to the breath, the movement of the breath in the body, noticing any tight or tense areas and see if we can breathe into those areas, relax them. So that's what I've been doing in the past three months, um, attending to my body and um, how how the suffering was manifesting in my physical body, um, how the thoughts, you know, and all the story-making around the suffering were affecting my body. Um, Sometimes I felt sick. I felt nauseous. I felt felt sick. So, um, and, and I noticed how that suffering that I was in just shut down all sense of spaciousness that I had experienced previously in my practice. It's just kind of like a, like a box kind of, kind of closing in on me. So it was a very powerful, it's been a very powerful and transformative um, experience practicing in this way. So enough about me. So um, what I wanted to talk about tonight was um, inspired by a teaching from Ajahn Chah, one of the great um, Thai meditation masters who was also the teacher for many of um, our senior um, Vipassana teachers here in the West. And um, in uh, in this teaching, he addresses the question, is rock climbing like meditation? And I was drawn to this because uh, my son, my son loves rock climbing. So, I'm just, just a, it's a short two-paragraph, two or three-paragraph um, teaching. So, um, once when Ajahn Chah was visiting the U.S., someone asked him a question 
about the need for sitting meditation. I have a friend whose meditation is rock climbing. He doesn't have to sit in meditation to concentrate his mind. Why do we have to sit in meditation? Couldn't we do something like rock climbing? Anything that puts us in the present moment. Then Ajahn Chah asked him, when your friend is rock climbing, does he contemplate the Four Noble Truths? We can be in the present moment, we can be clear, but are we developing discernment and learning to understand the nature of the mind, the nature of conditions? We mustn't be satisfied with merely cultivating calm and clarity, rather, that calm and clarity needs to be put to work. Its work is developing discernment and understanding. That's the crux of our practice. Take the illuminating idiom, truth discerning awareness. It's not just about awareness, it's awareness with discernment. And so to develop this discernment, we ask, what is the nature of things? the nature of conditions, the nature of my own mind. And we bring the attention inward and focus our awareness on the various feelings that are present. In particular, we attend to feelings of dis-ease, dissatisfaction or suffering. And we come to understand that those feelings are merely feelings. With any particular feeling we have, we ask ourselves, what are the causal conditions for that feeling? Where is, it res- where is its resolution and how can I help bring about that resolution? In this way, we are contemplating the Four Noble Truths exactly as the Buddha intended. So, what Ajahn Chah is speaking to here is the importance of cultivating um, these two approaches or two aspects of our Buddhist practice. They're kind of like two sides of the same coin. There's this concentration practice, like rock climbing, which aims to really um, focus, focus the mind and calm the mind so we can observe our experiences clearly. It's kind of like, you know, those um, little globes that have the little village and the little flakes in it and you shake it up and slowly, slowly the little flakes settle down. That's kind of like what concentration practice is like for the mind. It kind of settles all that agitation, all that thinking. So, and then there's our mindfulness practice, um, which, um, during which we really open fully to our experience, to whatever arises in the moment. So... For myself, I I frequently use both of those practices um, together in a meditation session. They kind of go hand in hand. And I begin with the concentration practice, focusing on my breath. And then when my mind is settled um, and and more quiet, then I, I open my awareness to what arises. So concentration practice has um, a number of benefits for us. Um, it, it helps us to develop a, a grounded, spacious, clear awareness. 
So, um, so as things arise, thoughts, feelings, physical sensations, um, there's less chance of our um, getting tight or reacting or resisting. And so we can be, it, it kind of creates a, a spaciousness so that we can be present for them without getting caught. We can investigate them and um, not get totally caught up in them. And so that's one benefit of concentration practice. And it has another benefit. So many people um, who um, have practiced and um, have had their minds get settled and concentrated, they experience... um, Deep feelings, very deep feelings kind of welling up within them of happiness, of contentment. And um, this is really a fruit of our practice. And it, the benefit, one of the benefits is that it inspires us to keep going, to have these feelings of um, deep happiness. Because sometimes it's hard to practice. It's hard, it's hard. It takes effort consistency, diligence. Um, and really, um, people report that this is a, um, it's like a sensual, a sensual pleasure. And um, it's, it's what the Buddha called the bliss that is blameless. The bliss that is blameless. Because really, with this kind of pleasure, there's no, there's no harming, not harming anyone or ourselves. We're not, um, we don't need to get something from someone or use some of the resources from the earth. We don't have to buy something. It's just touching into something that each one of us has within us. So concentration practice supports our ability to be mindfully aware of what arises. And what Ajahn Chah is encouraging um, is for us to not stop with this um, clarity, this um, uh, uh, this strong um, focus, but he wants us to bring the power of our mindful awareness to a process of investigation and discernment. Investigation and discernment. He says, We mustn't be satisfied with merely cultivating common clarity. So what does he want us, what does he want us to contemplate, to reflect on? Um, Of course, he begins by uh, talking about the Four Noble Truths. These are really the bedrock um, of our Buddhist practice. Um, You know, that there is suffering, there is suffering and that there is a cause of suffering, and that there is a possibility for each one of us to be free of that suffering. And so for me, um, it was this deepening awareness of human suffering that drew me to this work that I do, this work of spiritual care in hospitals. And, um, you know, um, every, every time I enter the hospital, I come face to face with um, the realities of our human existence, the um, aging, of course, birth, <laughs> but I haven't been called on that many births, but, um, but aging and, um, and illness and death. 
And um, coming to that over and over, it's really an extension of my Buddhist practice. And, you know, for Buddhists, hospitals, nursing homes, mortuaries, morgues, these are all sacred ground. They're sacred ground. And why is that? Well, we all know the story of the four, or maybe we, some of us know the story of the four heavenly messengers. Um, the heavenly messengers um, who inspired the Buddha to leave his palace, leave the luxury and comfort of his palace, to um, become a wanderer, to become a searcher, to find a way um, for us to live with these realities, um, painful realities of um, human existence. And um, so, um, and, and actually find deep joy and contentment as we live with these realities. And so, of course, the, the, the first three heavenly messengers were um, the sick person, the aging person, and then the corpse. So, um, so we call those the, the, the heavenly messengers. Um, and as Buddhists, we, um, we always turn towards the suffering. We turn towards it first in ourselves, um, as I've been doing. Um, and then as our practice deepens, it just, we just automatically turn towards others, the others who are suffering around us. And sometimes when I'm in the hospital, all I can do really is to just be present for people in their suffering and to be with them. And to um, hopefully um, convey a sense that um, I feel that we're all in this together. We're all in this together. Um, We all um, have this human condition um, that we have to live with. And um, so I hope also to to embody for them um, that sense that we're really in the midst of these painful things that can happen, that there is um, this sense of something greater than ourselves that, that is holding us. So I'll share an experience I had um, just recently. I was in the hospital um, this past Christmas Eve, um, and I sat with um, two families who lost a loved one on that night. And what I hoped, um, what I hoped that I was able to convey to them was that we are all together in this life. Um, and so can we keep our hearts open Understanding that, can we keep our hearts open to one another? And, you know, there are so many polarizing forces at work um, in our world today telling us over and over again that, you know, we need to fight for our own, for, for my, myself, for my family, for my tribe, for my religion. And so... Um, you know, my hope is that in the face of all the pain and suffering that we all must experience from time to time in life, and it's not that life is all pain and suffering, there's a lot of joy also, but the realities are that 
there is this suffering. So can we not stay somehow connected instead of pulling apart? And can we not offer um, one another love and compassion? And I think with this practice, what happens is that there really is a deep opening in our hearts. Um, I don't know if you felt that, but um, uh, I think this practice is the greatest hope that, that we have. Um, it's kind of like I, I believe in peace through inner peace. Peace through inner peace. So, so Ajahn Chah encourages contemplation of these Four Noble Truths. And he wants us to really bring the power of our mindful discernment towards understanding the conditions that lead to suffering, to understanding and investigating suffering so that we can um, start freeing ourselves. And so how, exactly do the, uh, so how exactly do we do this contemplation and reflection that he is recommending Well, the Buddha had some very specific instructions um, for um, how to go about this process. And um, he conveyed these to his son, Rahula. And I'll just read part of it, part of this um, teaching that he gave to his son. So what do you think, Rahula? What is the purpose of a mirror? for the purpose of reflection, venerable sir. Rahula, when you wish to do an action with the body, you should reflect upon that bodily action thus. Would this action that I wish to do lead to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences? with painful results. When you reflect, if you know this action that I wish to do with my body would lead to my own affliction or affliction of others, then you definitely should not do such an action with the body. Also, Rahula, while you are doing an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same bodily action. Thus, does this action lead to my own affliction, to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences? When you reflect, if you know, this action I am doing leads to my affliction or the affliction of others, then you should suspend such a bodily action. Also, Rahula, after you have done an action with the body, you should reflect upon that bodily action thus. Did that action lead to my own affliction or the affliction of others, or both? Was it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences? When you reflect, if you know this action led to my affliction or the affliction of others, it was unwholesome, then you should confess such a bodily action. Reveal it and lay it open to the teacher or to your wise companions. So he gives very specific instructions um, to um, 
reflect, maybe before we act, what will, what will this lead to? Suffering, my suffering, someone else's suffering. He, he wants us to, um, as we're acting or speaking, wants us to reflect. What does this? Is this leading to suffering? Is this causing harm? If it is, stop. And then later, after we have... And this is something that we can do in our, on, on the cushion, right? And the, at the end of the day, to reflect on um, some of the actions that, um, that we did during the day, some of the things that we said, and reflect and contemplate. Did that lead to suffering? Did that lead to happiness? So, I mean, this isn't easy. Uh, this isn't an easy practice and because it requires us to have slowed down enough, right? To be able to actually notice these things. Um, but, um, and also um, very important to, to know what our intention is before we speak or act. But this requires um, a slowing down, it requires taking, being able to take a pause. It requires mindfulness. Um, so I hope that you, um, I hope that you can feel some trust um, in this practice that we do, that it does eventually allow us to do just these things, to slow down, to take a pause, to actually be aware before you speak or act that there are actually a a range of things that you could do or say and understanding that some will lead to suffering and some will lead to maybe healing something, happiness. And it really is just a matter of us showing up for this practice. Just show up and put the effort in and know that um, over time it does its work. And for everyone it's different. The way it evolves and the time that it takes, it's, it's all different. Just following the breath seems so simple actually is very powerful. And so I encourage you to, um, as you're sitting in the evening, to, um, to take the Buddha's instructions and reflect on your day in that way. And fortunately for, um, for us as Buddhists, um, we, there's no heavy load of guilt that we need to put on ourselves when as we're contemplating we realize wow I really screwed up I really I really hurt someone I really caused um, harm and um, you know I have met some people who just cannot look at their mistakes they cannot look at them at all um, And they have been so um, conditioned to um, be be hard on themselves. And that's what makes it very difficult for them to really look at and investigate um, their unskillful actions. 
And, of course, our culture doesn't help things much. We live, really, um, in a culture of blame, don't we? It's a lot of blame. Always looking for where to point the finger. The finger. Um, So it's really not surprising um, that often we don't want to look at our mistakes. But the Buddha doesn't want us to feel guilty. In fact, um, he, he, um, he understands that if we're on the path to freedom, that guilt puts up a barrier that we can't get over. Um, it serves no purpose but to add, you know, add to the suffering. So he only encourages us to look with a clear, um, a, a clear lens at our actions and to bring them into the light of this um, non-judgmental mindfulness practice that we do. <clears throat> so we can actually learn something. We can actually learn something from them. We can make sure that we don't um, make that mistake again. Um, I know many people who seem to somehow repeat <laughs> repeat the same unskillful actions over and over. And um, so they've, they've formed a pattern and they avoid looking at it. But when we c- can really look clearly at those things that we've done that have caused harm and see clearly the suffering that they've caused, sometimes and often we can actually feel that suffering. And I think that's probably the most powerful antidote to repeating that same unskillful action. When we can be, as we're sitting, and we can be aware of that feeling of suffering, thinking about, wow, I I really screwed up. I really hurt that person. And I don't want that. I don't want, I don't want to suffer myself and I don't want that other person to suffer. So this is contemplation of the Four Noble Truths. We recognize that we're suffering from our actions or we cause someone else to suffer. We see the cause of the suffering. This, that would be our unskillful actions rooted in our wantings and our ill will or our confusion. And we realize that we really can end the suffering for ourselves and others by developing the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the fourth Noble Truth, the Noble Eightfold Path. By bringing this path of wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, um, wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And Ajahn Chah encourages us to bring our powers of discernment um, to the task of reflecting on better, a better way of handling these situations that come up um, in our practice. He calls it truth discerning awareness. I just want to read that last paragraph. And again, 
To develop this discernment, we can begin by asking ourselves, what is the nature of things, the nature of conditions, the nature of my own mind? Then we bring the attention inward and focus our awareness on the various feelings that are present. In particular, we attend to the feelings of disease, dissatisfaction, or suffering, and come to understand that those feelings are merely feelings. With any particular feeling we have, we ask ourselves, what are the causal conditions for that feeling? Where is its resolution? How can I help bring about that resolution? In this way, we are contemplating the Four Noble Truths exactly as the Buddha intended. So is rock climbing like meditation? So does anyone have anything they want to add or a question or, yeah, do we have a microphone? I have a question. Does it work? Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned uh, taking some time aside, uh, end of the day, maybe just kind of contemplating what did I do? Was it wholesome or unwholesome? And and I've been trying to do some uh, investigating emotions, meditation, just sitting down and watching my emotion. Uh, so is this um, um, is this a d- different kind of session uh, where because I think meditation? What I'm doing is Presently, what emotions are coming up? I'm I'm looking into that. So you're suggesting doing something to reflect on on it on the whole day on day to day basis. Well, um, I would just say that um, as I'm sitting in the evening, uh, the day just kind of comes up, you know, right? Things replay themselves, you know, and <clears throat> it's at that time that I can, you know, I can really look at my actions and see how appropriate they were how did they lend you know did they um, did they bring people together did they pull people apart did they um, hurt someone's feelings did you know they just come up right I mean I I assume this is not just me (laughs) as we sit in the evening the day comes up and so so um, as part of the meditation, um, I think it's really valuable to reflect <clears throat> on those activities of the day and to really, really look at them clearly. You know, like, wow, I don't think I really handled that very well. Fine, okay. You know, we're all human. We're, we all make mistakes. And <clears throat> but then I, I like to say to myself, well, what could I have done um, that would have been um, better for the situation? What, what would have been more beneficial? And to just ask yourself that, you know. And <clears throat> often it's those, um, those actions that we took during the day that didn't, that didn't feel good. Those are the ones that come up the strongest, I, I, I find, for myself. And so, <clears throat> and so to just really... It's okay, we, you know, we, I made a mistake, so um, 
I'm just going to try to do better next time. You know, that's, that's the beauty of this, um, this Buddhist practice that we have. There's no, no guilt. There's this understanding that, you know, um, as human beings, we, we have these, these conditions in our minds around our wantings and, and around our um, irritations and um, the things that we don't like about people. And, you know, that's just part of being human. But it's what, what we do. I mean, our actions in life, um, our actions in life do matter. They do matter. And so this is a way of really, the practice is, as I said, um, not <clears throat> a, a way of actually slowing down and bringing clarity so that we can make conscious choices as we go through the day. Um, um, but also um, a way of reflecting on a, a better way be a better way for me to handle that next time. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm not sure if your question at the end was rhetorical or not, but um, <laughs> I would say that rock climbing is like meditation. And Ajahn Shah also said that you can practice every minute of your life. And I also know that he can contradict himself. And so <laughs> when you do things like... Uh, rock climbing, um, that you need judgment and to need face danger. And I've done things like that. You do learn about yourself, your mind, your emotions, about um, impermanence, and, and develop wisdom. Mm-hmm. Okay. Beautiful. Oh, worth. I'm a rock climber. <laughs> well, I don't do rock climbing, but similar kinds of activities. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Anyone else? Good evening. Thank you for your talk. Um, On the subject then of activities that lend themselves to uh, centering our souls and being a little peaceful, I have a kind of unique question, I think, and it's certainly coming from a man. Um, Is quilting, I have a sister, I have a nephew who's married, and I'm trying to reach out to his wife, uh, and they have a three-year-old. There's a lot of Issues, you know. I mean, it's tough to be a young mother, but I was wondering if quilting would be an activity that would calm a human being, in this case, a lady, and would, you know, as opposed to the rock climbing. But it's a little closer to sitting. It's a little closer to concentrating. Quilting. So is that a is that a good meditative? <laughs> I I think it. I definitely think it is. And there used to be a group of women here um, in the early years of IMC, um, um, the f- uh, Full Moon Women's Gathering. It was called, and um, they created. Um, Cheryl Gassner was the woman who. Um, I don't know if any of you knew Cheryl, um, but um, what, she was a beautiful person, and. Um, they made the most incredible quilts. I mean, there's one hanging at the retreat center on the Ten Perfections. It's so beautiful. And so um, I think that's a very, a very meditative um, um, task or, or activity. So it sounds beautiful. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to... Um, ask a question regarding the events, the investigation process. How do you investigate without 
identifying with it. And that's where I seem to get lost mm-hmm. during the identifying. Mm-hmm. I tend to identify and it gets charged up with certain emotions and feelings. Yeah. The, um, you know, it's, if you think of yourself as um, a series of actions, actions, it's hard, it's, it's, um, because really, if, if, if you try to um, identify something solid and permanent that is yourself, you, you'd have a hard, you'll, you'll have a hard time finding it, right? I don't know if you've contemplated the um, not-self, but, um, but, you know, I mean, there's very little that's permanent and solid here. There's nothing that's solid and permanent here. But <clears throat> what does define us um, is our actions. And there's nothing... Um, so, um, so what is there really to um, hold on to in terms of actions? They're always... You know, they're, they're, it's movement. So um, I don't know if that would help you um, kind of let go of identifying. But, I mean, your, 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 your action yesterday um, could be changed tomorrow into, because you contemplated it, into something quite beautiful. Even though it was harmful at that time, you learned something from it. And you, the next time around, it's something beautiful. So um, I don't know if that helps you. (laughs) We are a series of actions. I mean, that seems to me to be what what kind of defines us. Um, Because I don't know what else is. (laughs) So. well, all right. Is there any other question? Any other? I, I wanted to um, just read one other thing. Um, this is <clears throat> totally a different kind of reading. It's not um, Ajahn Chah. Um, it's just a favorite. Um, it's from Thich Nhat Hanh. It's just a favorite of mine. It's called The River. And I think I have time to share it. So it's not that long. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful river finding her way among the hills, forest, and meadows. She began by being a joyful stream of water, a spring, dancing and singing as she ran down from the top of the mountain. She was very young, and as she came to the lowland, she slowed down. She was thinking about going to the ocean. As she grew up, she learned to look beautiful, winding gracefully among the hills and meadows. One day she noticed the clouds within herself, clouds of all sorts of colors and forms. She did nothing during these days but chase after clouds. She wanted to possess one. But clouds float and travel, and they are always changing. Sometimes they look like an overcoat, sometimes like a horse. Because of the nature of impermanence within the clouds, the river suffered. Her pleasure, her joy, had become just chasing after clouds, one after another. But despair, anger, and hatred became her life. Then one day a strong wind came and blew away all the clouds. The sky was completely empty. 
Our river thought life was not worth living for there were no longer any clouds to chase after. She wanted to die. If there are no clouds, why should I be alive? But how can a river take her own life? That night the river had the opportunity to go back to herself for the first time. She had been running for so long after something outside of herself that she had never seen herself. That night was the first opportunity for her to hear her own crying, the sounds of water crashing against the banks of the river. She realized that what she had been looking for was already in herself. She found out clouds are nothing but water. Clouds are born from water, return to water. And she found out that she herself is water. The next morning, when the sun was in the sky, she discovered something beautiful. She saw the blue sky for the first time. She had only been interested in clouds, and she had missed seeing the sky. Clouds are impermanent, but the sky is stable. She realized the immense sky had been within her heart since the very beginning. This great insight brought her peace and happiness as she saw the vast, wonderful blue sky, she knew her peace and stability would never be lost again. That afternoon, the clouds returned, but this time she did not want to possess any of them. She could see the beauty of each cloud, and she was able to welcome all of them. When a cloud came by, she would greet him or her with loving kindness, and when the cloud wanted to go away, she would wave to him with loving kindness. She realized that all the clouds are her. She didn't have to choose between the clouds and herself. Peace and harmony existed between her and the clouds. So why don't we just sit together for a few minutes? (laughs) 